All right, we'll, uh, we'll get moving into this. So this was one of those Sunday mornings when, and this doesn't happen to me very often, and it hasn't happened in a while because, uh, you, as most of you know, throughout most of COVID, we were recording everything ahead of time. And so, um, you know, it took a real act of God to get me to, to move from what I'd recorded on Thursday to anything different on Sunday. But I, I woke up this morning and it was like one of those, uh, the whole message is just going to get changed today. And so uh, I've been <laughs> scrambling through my, ro- my notes, rewriting things, emphasizing different things. And I really think it's where the Lord wants us to go together today. Um, but I, I've said before, I know when I don't have as much time put into to prepping something that it tends to go a little bit longer. So my goal is to not go long, but the fact that this is all like jumbled together and fresh this morning... Uh, I just want you to know my goal is 25 minutes so that when I completely miss it, uh, you'll all be like, well, at least he tried. At least he, at least he tried for it. So anyhow, um, kids, it's so great to have you here. I know you did this last week when Betty was teaching, uh, but I guess in that whole talking about how I might talk a little longer today, work slowly through that worksheet. Don't race through it. Because I don't, I don't want you to get bored and start fighting with your friends, all right? There's no prizes for being in first. Just work nice and slow through it. And, and, and savor, savor that maze. I know, I, I looked at that maze and I solved it in about 30 seconds. But you guys savor it, okay? Take the long route out. All right. Uh, if you, it, Mike, do you have any extra worksheets? Did we have any extras? We're all out? Oh, sorry, adults. No worksheets for you this week. I know some of you were probably really hoping to get your hands on one of those worksheets. Uh, maybe next week we'll print more. Anyhow, so this summer we're doing lessons from the early church. Uh, part of the reason that I felt inspired to do a series on this is because the series we'd been doing on the book of Judges has just really pointed out for me what a strong influence uh, surrounding culture can have on our understanding of, of God and, and what a corrupting influence that can be. Um, in reality, it's impossible for any one of us to, to look at the world around us and, and, and not at least be somewhat uh, impacted in what we see by this lens we have, this cultural lens, uh, what we were raised in, where we live, uh, what the people around us believe. And you know, even when we read scripture, we might feel like I'm just reading the pure words of God, but, you know, our Bibles have all been translated uh, to get into English, and um, so it's different than the language the authors spoke, and, and of course, social scientists know that language has, you know, it heavily influences how we see the world and how we see what's around us, um, and, and I was confronted with the reality of that a, a couple of weeks ago. I have a cousin who lives in Southern California, but she's from the Pacific Northwest, and she was telling a handful of us a story about talking with her friends about uh, it, it was raining lightly that day and she was sitting in Southern California and she remarked to her friends that it was misting. And they looked at her like, what are you talking about? It's misting. And she's like, yeah, it's, it's misting. You guys know what I mean when I say misting, right? It's just a little bit of rain, you know, liquid sunshine we call it or uh, low clouds. But, you know, it's just a little bit of rain. They had no idea. They had no frame of reference. They were like, no, it's raining. Get your umbrellas. It's raining. And so she was saying how in Southern California, they just have one word for rain, and that's rain. And it's either raining or it's not raining. There's nothing 
in between. But you know, here in, in the Pacific Northwest, we have, a, we have a different relationship with rain, right? And so we have a number of, uh, we have an extensive vocabulary with all sorts of different words to describe uh, what the clouds are doing to us. Um, so kids, what are, some, what are some other words for raining? Go ahead, Evie. You're just going to rattle them all off? Hard rain, rain, that's pretty good. Soft rain, drizzle, huh? Drizzle, how about drizzle? Yeah, go ahead. Raining cats and dogs, that one might not be unique. Yeah, go ahead. Showers, I like it. Yeah, showers, that means it's raining intermittently, right? Um, So we have all these words and our our language, the actual way that we communicate about rain is different than our neighbors just to the south of us. So, uh, so my hope in this series is that as we take time to just examine the life and the faith of first century church, we would be able to maybe break out of our culture just a little bit and embrace a vision of God, a vision of his kingdom, a vision of his will for his people that's maybe just a little less encumbered by uh, our modern sensib- sensibilities. Um, so I was reading a book this week, and I was confronted with the reality of just how much damage can happen when we, when we lean more into our own cultural context rather than the Scriptures alone, especially when our interpretation of Scripture relies on our own cultural context or our modern understanding rather than the context in which Scripture was written. So I've been reading this book. It's called uh, The Heavenly Man. And it's a biography of uh, a Christian named Brother Yoon. And uh, that's a Chinese word. I'm sure I said it right. Um, And he was a, uh, well, he is uh, a part of the house church movement in China uh, in the like 70s, 80s, and 90s. And, uh, And so what had happened was he's living at a time when in the generation before, the communists had, had killed or expelled all the, all the Christians. And, and so all the, as God's spirit is working in China, all that people have to go on is uh, what they can read in the Bible that they might be able to get their hands on and how the Holy Spirit is guiding them in their interpretation of, of what they read. And some things that really stood out to me in this, this story of his life is you have these movements of Christians who are completely isolated from the rest of Christianity, and all they have is a scriptures to go on, and, and some of the, the things that they're able to accomplish, the places that God is able to take them with just the scriptures is remarkable. I mean, they didn't need, like, uh, charismatic or Pentecostal teachers to be living where the presence of the Spirit is manifesting itself in their midst in, in miracles and healings and and signs and wonders, and you know, I mean, all the charismatic Pentecostal stuff. And they didn't need any kind of formal training to land on orthodox positions of salvation and baptism and community communion and the deity of Christ and and all of that. Like they were able to read the scriptures and arrive at these conclusions um, just by the scriptures. So anyhow, I I'll, I want to read a little portion of the book. So um, uh, this is a part where. He's writing about disunity in the house church. And so he says, Throughout the 1970s, there had been just one house church movement in China. There were no networks or organizations, just groups of passionate believers who came together to worship and study God's word. 
The leaders all knew each other. God had brought them together during times of hardship. They learned to have fellowship and trust one another while they were shackled together in prison. Many of the pastors spend uh, periods of their life in prison. Um, after being released, they would work together for the advancement of the gospel. In those early days, we were truly unified. Suffering had broken down all the denominational walls in the Chinese church. When China's borders started to open up in the early 80s, many foreign Christians wanted to know how they could help the church in China. The first thing they did was smuggle Bibles into, in for us from Hong Kong. These gifts were greatly appreciated and so desperately needed. He says, once I took a train from the various house church leaders with various house church leaders to the southern city of Gangzhou to receive Bibles from our Western friends. After a day or two of fellowship, we boarded the train again, headed home with our precious gifts. We were so happy and full of love for one another. However, after a few years, these same mission organizations started putting other books at the tops of the bags of Bibles. Those were books about one particular denomination's theology or teaching that focused on a certain aspect of God's word. What's going to happen? This, I believe, was the start of disunity among many of China's house churches. These booklets told us that we must worship in a certain way, or that we must speak in tongues to be true believers, or that only if we were baptized in Jesus' name, instead of in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, could we be saved. Other teachings focused on extreme faith, and still others argued for or against the role of women in the church. We read all these booklets, and soon we were confused. The churches started to split into groups that believed one thing against groups that believed another. And instead of only speaking for Jesus, we also started speaking against other believers who didn't conform to our views. He goes on to write about uh, just a restoration of God bringing the church through this period of disunity and, and back into unity uh, among the house church movements. And it's a remarkable thing, but um, you, know, you imagine the scenario where the church is unified through suffering, and then what is it that could possibly break this unified church into pieces? What could, it, what could it be that would turn these Christian brothers and sisters against one another? And, well, what else could it be but good Christian doctrine, right? <laughs> these books that have been added to the Bible. Um, I think one of the realities that I found in this, um, this is fill in the blank. I skipped fill in the blank number one, kids. I'm sorry. Number one was... Uh, culture and language impact how we see things. Number two is the scriptures will take you really far if you commit to reading them and obeying them. What I see in the evidence in the Chinese churches, you know, Chinese house churches journey through the 80s and 70s, 80s and, and 90s is evidence that when a church is committed to just the word of God, they can go far, uh, especially when they're committed to reading and obeying it. Um, Today we're going to be looking at lessons on baptism from the early church. And I think baptism is a perfect example of a doctrine that has grown to be more than uh, what the Word of God says it is. Uh, baptism is a ritual. It's this practice Christians have had since the beginning where we will, uh, I mean even back in the book of Acts, we will take a subject, a person, and we treat them with some water, Maybe we immerse them, maybe we sprinkle them, maybe we pour the water over them. Uh, there's this ritual. We treat them with the water, and, and this ritual is believed by Christians to do, uh, I mean, a number of different things. Anything from sealing a person's salvation to being like a marriage ceremony between them and God to, to being symbolic of us being buried with Christ and, and then raised with him. I mean, it, there's, there's a number of different 
things in ways that Christians try to describe what it is that we're actually doing with the water. And the unfortunate thing is that most of the conversations I've had about baptism in, in my adult life have revolved around uh, how it can be done wrong or about people who are doing it wrong. So should you be sprinkling people or should you be dunking them? What, what age should someone be when they're baptized? You know, kind of like a Goldilocks. Not too young and not too old. You know, you need to just right, just the right age. Um, discussions about the possible consequences, of course. If people are doing it wrong, we talk about the consequences of doing it wrong. And those consequences range from, well, it's relatively harmless to they're definitely hellbound. You know, it just, there's... Uh, so today what I want to do is I want to try to frame the concept of baptism not necessarily in the, in the modern debates between people like, you know, uh, Baptists and Lutherans, but, but in the mindset of a first century church. You know, over the last 2,000 years, the ritual of baptism has been consistently and widely practiced by all Christians everywhere in a variety of different ways. And I think in reality, for a variety of different reasons, too. Um, and I think that some of that variety, uh, it stems from just cultural differences between groups. It stems from uh, different people having a little different idea about how the world works and how God works, and then ending up with a drastically different practice or teaching on, on baptism. So I say we're going to go to Scripture. The Scripture I want to go to is Colossians chapter 2. Uh, Paul's writing to the church in, in, uh, uh, to the people that are living and worshiping the Colossian church. And, uh, and in chapter 2, he writes um, a little bit about baptism. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, he writes, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. If it seems like we're totally off task here, just stay with us. Keep reading a few verses more. He says, Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. What is he talking about? This is supposed to be about baptism. What are we doing here? Verse 12, he says, Circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised you from the dead. What Paul has done here is he is linking this new Christian idea, this new Christian practice of baptism, he's linking it in the minds of the readers to this historically Jewish ritual of circumcision. Circumcision, sorry. That's a tongue twister. Kids go home and say that six times fast. Uh, anyways, so one of the most notable differences between the church today and the church in the first century is that especially when the church started out, all of the Christians were Jewish people. All of the Christians had a similar culture, a similar background, similar beliefs that they brought into the context of living in Jesus' kingdom. And so they, they all had a similar culture, and their religious identity, their political identity, their cultural identity was all wrapped up in the same thing of being Jewish. Their religion was integrated into their education system. It was integrated into their form of government. It, it, being a Jew wasn't just a statement that meant they went and worshiped God on the synagogue, you know, uh, at a certain day of the week. Like, being a Jew meant that they belonged to this unique 
community, this unique people of God who had a unique nation and who had unique claims about insight into the truth of who God is. And this belonging was meant to impact every part of their life. And, you know, there were Jews who were more devout and Jews who were less, less devout, but uh, the whole concept of a Jewish identity was uh, meant to encapsulate all that they were. And part of that concept was this commandment they had in the law to circumcise the males. So every Jewish male went through a ceremony of this, of this belonging to the community of, of, of the covenant. Most of them at a very young age, some of them at an older age. I mean, older, especially if they were outsiders who had joined the Israelite nation. But they had this bit of flesh removed from their bodies through the practice of circumcision. And this was meant to be a, a sign uh, that was commanded by God to their father Abraham, but a sign that set the Jews apart from the rest of the world, the rest of the people. It was a sign that this, this person who's being circumcised, it belongs to the people of God, is a part of this unique community. The person's an heir to God's promises to Abraham. And, and so circumcision was meant to be a reminder to the Jews, not just that they belong to this family, but even about the nature of this family. That there was this nation that had resulted because of a, a divine miracle that had happened in this elderly couple. You have Abraham and Sarah. They're super old. They don't have any kids. And God says, I'm going to make you a nation. Believe me. Trust me. I'll make you a nation. And then there's this miraculous birth of a son. This elderly couple is able to conceive. And so even in that, the, the circumcision was a command that went in line with that promise and then the fulfillment of that promise. And so there's a reminder to each uh, person who's a member of the Jewish community, through this ritual of circumcision, there's a reminder that we are truly a miraculous people. We exist by a miracle of God. And we are connected to those, those promises that God gave to Abraham, the blessings that God promised to Abraham. We're connected to all of that. And this ritual reminds us that we are inheritors of that and connected to it. And so every member of the other church understood that culturally. And what Paul is doing is linking this concept of baptism to that Jewish mindset, right? Okay, this is a ritual. It's, it's different. It, in appearances, it might look more like our washing rituals because there's water involved. But this is a ritual of belonging. Not necessarily, you know, there's, there's a tie in there. This is a ritual of being a part of the community. And so if you kids are filling in your blanks still, baptism is a ritual of belonging. Boy, if you are just tracking and paying attention, you can get 100% on this quiz. Um, it's going to be really good for you. Uh, so it's where the covenant community, the people who are uh, in covenant with God and, and living as a part of his promises, are embracing someone into their membership and saying, you are in. It's a ritual like that. Now, the thing about religious rituals is they can tend to take on a life of their own, uh, the whole idea that you are doing something to communicate something can start to create mixed up, idea, mixed up ideas inside of our heads about what it is that is actually happening. So much so to the point that at times we'll insist that people believe things about the ritual or, or, uh, or practice the ritual in a certain way that would then even go beyond what the scriptures ever said. Ever said. Um, to the point where what was given to the church as a ritual of belonging becomes more about a ritual of disowning and separating ourselves from others. I, I 
spent some time reading through the Westminster Confession this week. It's a it's an old traditional church confession. It, it, it's related to some you know Reformed denominations, but um, every single section of the confession. Take some time to read through it this week if you want, and and really dissect it and pull apart every single section of the of the confession. There's seven sections. Every single section says something that goes beyond what Scripture says, pushes in some kind of obligation, some kind of of truth that goes beyond the plain truth of Scripture. And so you can see how through tradition and through people deciding what's important, emphasizing different things for maybe cultural reasons, over time, the sacrament ends up kind of taking on a life of its own and becoming something different than it ever was meant to be. It ends up having a life of its own, even apart from the life that Scripture would give to it and the importance of its own that would be apart from the importance that Scripture gives to it. And what we end up with that is we end up with a ritual that no longer has to do with belonging, but a ritual that has to do with reasons to disagree, reasons to separate, reasons to kick each other out. So maybe you feel that someone hasn't been baptized right, and you're like, hey, actually, no, you have no part in us. What did they say? You know, the book, he mentions a book on baptism that they'd thrown on top of the Bible is the one that was saying, well, you got to say in Jesus and not in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like, Okay, and if you say the wrong words, you're not in. You are not, this is no longer a, a, a ritual of belonging. This is a ritual of disowning you, right? Like, you have no part in us. If you didn't say the right words, if you didn't use the right method, if you weren't baptized at the right age, and it's like, I'm sorry, but if you don't toe the line of my religious convictions, there is, there's no belonging together in us. So you can see it's quite problematic when what is meant to be about belonging, what's given to the church as a, as a form of communicating belongingness to other people becomes all about disowning and separating, becomes all about disunity. And I have to wonder at times, like how much of the modern church's effectiveness to share the gospel with the world around them ends up being clipped by stuff like this, right? Uh, so I want to try to lay out baptism as simply as I can, um, and we'll just look at the scripture with a little bit of cultural context for help. So before Jesus came, there was this guy, John the Baptist. And, and he's the guy who made famous, at least regionally, uh, a practice known as baptizing people. Uh, where people would dip themselves in water, immerse themselves in water, uh, maybe pour water over themselves, depending on I don't know, your interpretation. But... It's a ritual that found roots really in Old Testament washing rituals. And, and so John's baptism was kind of tied to this idea of cleansing um, and, and inspired from these Old Testament. You got to wash when, you know, you go, through, you go through life and life leaves you dirty. You got to wash when you come before a holy God and be cleaned. But unlike the traditional washing rituals of the Old Testament, woven into John's baptism was this ritual of belonging, this idea of uh, this, this baptism symbolizes you becoming a part of something new. And so John's message was the kingdom is coming, God is doing something new, and he's telling people to repent from their old life, be baptized, and begin to live a new life that is a new life in this coming kingdom of God. Um, 
there's a blending of the washing and, and the, the belonging rituals of Judaism into this practice of baptizing. Now, there's evidence in the oral traditions of the Jewish rabbis that this whole idea of an immersion bath or, or a mikvah, it, it had become a part of belonging as well in, in Jewish faith at some point. I mean, maybe between, you know, maybe two centuries before Christ and three centuries after. We don't, there's a big window, 500 years there, where it was a part of the Jewish faith. Um, and some people argue that this is what influenced John's, to, John's you know, doctrine to do baptism this way. And others will argue that actually Christianity influenced Jewish doctrine to go that way. We don't really know. But the whole rationale behind it was that after Israel was, was delivered from Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. And as they went through the water, they came up with a new identity. They're no longer slaves. They're now a nation. God established them as a people. They became something new, you know, covenant on Sinai. And so because of that, being a part of the Jewish nation went, meant maybe you go through the water too. And you become a part of this new covenant people. And so uh, baptism was kind of tied into belonging ritual by the time John the Baptist came along. So in this similar thinking to all of that, John is saying to his converts, like, wash away the old life, be joined to this new life, repent of the old life and living for the old kingdom and join this kingdom of God that he is building, this new thing that God is doing. And so then Jesus comes along and something that he does that is different from how oftentimes Christians do when they come along and build on each other's ministries. The first thing that Jesus does is he goes to John and he insists that he is baptized. This story is recorded in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus comes to John to be baptized and at first John refuses. He's like, no way. He recognizes Jesus for who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, right? He's like, you're greater than me. You should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. But then Jesus says to him, no, I want you to baptize me. He says, let it be so now. He says, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness this way. There's probably people who are smarter than me that would say that means other things, but I'm taking it this way today. I think what Jesus was trying to say to John was, it is important to God that this new work of his kingdom is happening in unity with everything that it's building on. And so for Jesus, it was important for him to unify what he was about to do in transforming the world to what John had been doing. So rather than go out and launch his own ministry and be like, actually, John's right about these seven things, but there's these eight things that he's wrong about, and now Jesus is going to fix those things, and now, now leave John and come and join me and be a part of my thing. Jesus, instead of that, submits himself at the beginning of his ministry to John's message and to his ministry by going and being baptized in it. And the baptism becomes then a symbol that this new kingdom that God is building, John is a part of it, Jesus' ministry is a part of it. It becomes a symbol that, your last fill in the blank, that Jesus' ministry and John's ministry belong together, which then becomes a witness to the rest of the body of Christ, hopefully for the rest of, you know, as long as God has us doing stuff here on this earth, that these ministries that are a part of the kingdom of God belong together. It's like Jesus says, I'm going to surrender my own body to the water of baptism to this model that John has, you know, trademarked out here in the wilderness. And I'm going to enter into this new thing that God is doing in unity with the other people who are a part of it. 
After Jesus rose from the grave, he commanded his followers to, to baptize people. It, it was one of the only two rituals that Jesus commanded to his disciples. And so, uh, you, you imagine all of the things that God had commanded in the Old Testament. And these are the two things that our Lord commands us to do. All the rituals that were set out. He says, I want you to share the Lord's Supper and I want you to baptize people. Um, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the New Testament authors add to the idea of cleansing and belonging. They add some themes to that. One of them being our own death and resurrection. Our own rebirth theme, right? This new thing that God is doing, this kingdom he is building, it's a holy kingdom. So as it turns out, flesh and blood cannot inherit the holy things of God. And so we're invited to, in a, in a figurative and symbolic way, but hopefully in our hearts in a literal way, to lay down our lives, to lay down in, in, sacrif- like in, in sacrifice, to be joined to Christ in his death as we go down into the water, and then to be resurrected with Christ as we come out of the water, to be resurrected to a holy and a new life in him. That we might be born again into a life with the Holy Spirit. Added to the idea of birth, resurrection, belonging, cleansing, all of that, we also have added in the New Testament this kind of, we'll call it the union principle. But the idea that baptism is understood to be a, a ceremony or a ritual by which Christians are living out being unified with Christ in all things. The idea of union, of course, brings up notions of marriage, right? And you can see where um, when the marriage, you know, Christians who might lean heavily into that marriage analogy will say things like, well, only, you know, only consenting adults can get married, so only consenting adults can be baptized, or, uh, you know, things like that. Um, they maybe forget about some of the other themes or metaphors in here, like circumcision was something that, you know, Jewish people were doing to babies. And so um, <laughs> you can see how when we, don't, when we don't stay connected to the full picture, we can really quickly begin to emphasize things that are important, but not necessarily more important than the whole picture. And when we begin to emphasize things that, are more, that aren't as important as the whole picture, as if they were the whole picture, we end up with disunity and hostility in the body of Christ. So as time goes on, uh, the church gradually becomes less and less Jewish and more and more uh, everything else. You know, the gospel spreads to members of every tribe and tongue and nation, and more and more of Jesus' followers are not circumcised Jews who are washing themselves at all times for various reasons. And so many of those old rituals kind of fall away and become less and less what the church sees as important for Jesus' followers to follow. And yet, the one thing that they all share in common, maybe the two things they all share in common, are these things that Christ commanded. Baptism and communion. And the cool thing about baptism is it's through this ritual that we can be connected to all of the faith community. You know, across, uh, even if we don't do the same method as our neighbors, you know, on the other side of town or, or, you know, maybe we're dunking and they're sprinkling or something like that. Like the ritual is wet there and the significance and the scripture is behind it. And so we can see it as a ritual of belonging to this great work that God is doing. Um, so we have this thing for us that shows we're connected with a covenant community of God across the globe uh, when we baptize, I think we do really, really well to think of it as, uh, as it being all about belonging, all about uh, being connected to the kingdom and this thing that God is doing. Uh, when Paul lays out the gospel in his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, 
He says that because of what Christ has done, he talks about in chapter 5 how God is reconciling all people to himself. He says all men, but he means all people. I assure you, ladies, he means all people. Um, and he says that he's no longer counting men's sins against them. He might just mean men there. I don't know. Um, but he says he's no longer counting men's sins against them, uh, but he's, he's reconciling all people to God, no longer counting men's sins against them. And so the message is to the, the world, the message of the gospel is, hey, you are forgiven, you are in. Those, if, if you are concerned that God is counting your sins against you, he is not. Christ has paid it all. You're forgiven, you're in, and you are as in as it gets. So come and be a part of this thing. And so then baptism becomes a ceremony that is supposed to be all about that, um, that message being uh, lived out in a believer's life in a symbolic and yet also a very real way. You're as in as it gets. Um, so one uh, ministry that I think embodies this messaging of the gospel so well is Royal Family Kids. So a number of years ago, it got launched in our community. And the whole idea is that the faith community would host foster kids in a camp for a week and telling them, you're a part of this royal family. And so in an area of their lives that has been disrupted by, you know, the sinfulness of human behavior, uh, an area of their lives where maybe they don't have the same uh, resources and richness that people from, uh, you know, families have, um, the church is stepping into that place and saying, there is a divine family of God, and you are a part of it. You're a part of this royal family. And so uh, we talked about how they're uh, doing their camp this week. And as we kind of turn to the table um, for communion, we're not going to have time for table discussions today. I apologize. Uh, there's the questions real quick. Just in case I talked faster than I thought I would, I was going to throw those up there for you. So ponder on those for a moment. All right. Okay, moving on. So as we turn to the table for communion, um, it, part of what we're wanting to do today and part of the reason we have some of our Royal Family Kids friends here, uh, staff who are up and put on the camp, is we just want to uh, commission them for this ministry of communicating to these kids in our community that they are part of the family. They're in. Uh, I don't think we're going to be baptizing anyone at camp, um, but <laughs> that would be controversial because uh, Christians are coming together on it. We wouldn't be able to agree on how to do it, so... <laughs> There's just no point. Um, but uh, we are, in a sense, uh, I think, in, in a very real sense, we are uh, proclaiming that message to them and trying to get the ball rolling in their lives of living in that reality where they've been reconciled to God and they're part of this, this uh, holy family. And so um, any, of, any of you who are going to the camp, if you could just stand where you're at. We're not going to gather around and pray because we don't want to give these people COVID right before they go to camp. So um, if you guys stand where you're at, and uh, if you just want to extend an arm out as a gesture, as if, if I could be, you know, in proximation with them, I would lay a hand on them, uh, and I would pray for them. And I just want to pray a prayer over you guys uh, as you go to do this work. And then um, we're praying for them to go and do the work, but this is an opportunity for you in spirit and in heart to get behind this work and be a part of what they're doing, uh, unity in the body of Christ, Right. And so uh, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for our brothers and sisters who are making the sacrifices needed to communicate to the foster children in our community that they are a part of your family. We know that at times those sacrifices probably 
way like a millstone around people's necks and they wonder if it's worth it. And we just pray that uh, even in this condensed where a week's worth of camp is happening in a single day, we pray that there would be many moments that would be encouraging where uh, we would see spiritual reconciliation happening before our eyes. And the whole idea that it is worth it would, uh, would, just, uh, would just hit home in our hearts. And, and the sacrifices that we make would seem small, and your sacrifice would loom large, and your grace and your ability to reconcile would seem so huge. Uh, we pray that uh, each staff person, especially the ones here in this room, but each volunteer, every staff person is going to be working with those kids that every word out of their mouth would communicate to the kids, you are in, you are a part, you belong, this is for you. Um, Especially in a context where the church is coming uh, together across denominational lines and and, um, coming together across denominational beliefs and things like that, we just pray none of that would have any place in disrupting the work of reconciliation that you have planned for this week. And so uh, would you anoint our friends with every spiritual gift, with every resource of heaven they need to pull this off, and, uh, and anything that we might possess as the body of Christ in ourselves, we would just extend to them, and we would ask that you would put it in them as we extend our arms towards them. Uh, bless them, and, and keep them, and empower them to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.